So, Corwin, I'm so excited to uh, chat with you today. What are we going to delve into? Yeah, Elizabeth, I'm excited to chat with you as well. Uh, today we're going to be trying to tackle some really uh, broad subjects, but bringing it into very specific intersections. We're going to be looking at healing, uh, both the healing of the self and the healing of the world in terms of uh, sort of philosophies, but then how those philosophies can practically apply to our, our uh, daily lives. Yeah. And we're going to be looking at specifically in terms of the subjects that we're studying, which is uh, water, water deities, uh, reptilian deities, shapeshifters, and the sacred feminine, and of course the goddess. Mm-hmm. So for those of you listening, we're going to be doing a bit of a cross-cultural analysis uh, on, on deities, specifically female ones and, and ones that are dual in nature. So this extreme masculine essence woven with an extreme feminine essence and, and how that relates to healing, um, not just potentially healing oneself, but dare I say healing the masses. I'm talking nature, things like climate change, you know, big stuff. Good yeah, stuff. good stuff. <laughs> okay, well, let's dig in. Um, so I guess we'll we'll start with some terms. I yeah. mean, when we when we talk about, let's start with goddesses. When we talk about goddesses, you know, um, I'm referring to these archetypal beings, right, who represent certain spiritual attributes uh, to which we may aspire, such as <clears throat> tenderness or ferocity. Um, but the, these deities also carry a metaphysical energy that we can tap into um, whenever we need the support of like these invisible allies, you know. Mm-hmm. So when I use that term, you know, those are the kind of uh, definitions I'm talking about, right? These archetypal beings, but also these metaphysical energies that we as humans can tap into for internal strength. Um, other important terms... Yeah, well, I guess uh, as we look at this idea of goddesses, we should keep in mind um, when we think of the word goddess, it is uh, sort of front-loaded with a Western context. Most people are going to be thinking of maybe Greek goddesses or, um, you know, these specific, like, kind of English language, Western-derived ideas of this stuff. But really, we are, when we talk about goddesses, sometimes we're going to be talking about Akua, you know, Hawaiian uh, deities, or sometimes we'll be talking about the devis of... uh, Hindu and and Buddhist uh, philosophical systems. So we're using this term goddess in an intercultural sense, and I, I think it's important for us to for our audience to keep that in mind that um, we're not using necessarily the the terms of the indivi- the individual traditions, but when we're talking about goddesses, we don't want it to be you know strictly wrapped up in the the Western idea of a goddess. We're kind of talking about these, like you say, these uh, metaphysical energies that are transcendent of you know, this kind of specific Western cultural definition that we associate with that word. Yeah, important distinction. Thank you, for sure. Um, and I think another important distinction, you know, we're going to be throwing around words like feminine and, and masculine, right? right? Yeah. Um, so I think before we really dig in, we should talk a little bit about that too. So, you know, when I'm talking about the feminine, uh, we're talking about something that's not bound by the physical body, right, Corwin? Mm-hmm. Um so like more of an aggregate of qualities, right? Uh, such as um, mercy, loving kindness, wildness, inclusiveness, radical truth-telling, right? Um, and tendencies such as nurturing, subversive, relational, community building, uh, being heart-centered and 
honoring of the embodied experience, right? Comfortable with a sense of ambiguity, right? These mm-hmm. are all uh, these essential natures of the feminine, right? So not something bound by gender or the physical body, but in aggregate of qualities more so. Right. Um, same for the masculine, right? In aggregate of qualities. Uh, stability, strength, logic, action, protection, assertiveness, right? Mm-hmm. We've definitely seen in the contemporary day the, the feminine and masculine reduced to a sort of biological phenomena, this conception that it relates to male body and female body as they exist in the physiological realm. But we're talking about something uh, beyond that, something that is kind of identified in many different cultures as um, it's not a like so much an abstracted ideal as it is just a, almost you could call it like cosmic principles of femininity and masculinity. And so while they do relate to our bodies and our relationship with our bodies, they don't relate uh, directly to like our sort of socially identified sex or something like that. But rather there is elements of femininity and masculinity within all of us um, to varying degrees. And this is something that has been kind of uh, eroded in the contemporary exploration of, of these ideas as we understand them through Western culture. Yeah, and the idea that you know they're supposed to complement each other, each mm-hmm. other, right? Not in terms of of opposites, but in um, you know complementary in their nature. Yeah, that's really huge. Uh, like I think in the modern day, we want to think of things like okay, so the masculine is strong and the feminine is weak, like they're opposites. But that's not really true. Uh, maybe a, a better way of understanding that would be to say something like the masculine is firm and the feminine is flexible uh, or fluid. You know, So they're not actually opposites of each other, but rather complementary dynamics, both of which are important to all people. Yeah. You bring in the, um, the I think that was a really good example, the, the concept of fluidity, right? Mm-hmm. And, and what that says about existence or, or nature. You know, there are... are uh, striking similarities between the symbols and images associated in various places with uh, the worship of the goddess and her various aspects of mother, um, ancestress, creatrix, um, you know, I think that's an interesting parallel between this fluidity of nature, right, and uh, the the goddess and, and we bring in, you know, water, perhaps. That's right, yeah. Um because water is something that is not exclusively in the realm of the feminine necessarily, but often has correspondence with femininity, and maybe that has to do with this fluidity, also this life-giving nature. Um, we are, what is it, 75% water or something like that, if you want to quote you know, pop science. And so obviously this is a huge part of all of us. Um, and additionally, we come from these waters of life, the embryonic womb, where we start... Uh, our existence and then we're born into this this world from there so yeah water definitely has a lot of overlap and interplay with with these concepts and particularly with this feminine fluidity uh, sort of shapeshifter spirituality that we're discussing and there are a lot of um, cultures or religious traditions right that have um, like we're talking about this dual nature right and and the coexistence of each sorry in, in Hawaiian religion in Ho'omana you have um, male akua or deity, right, who are associated with different types of water. And so not to say that um, it is in any sense only associated with a feminine, um, but I do think that in our discussion of really these duality, right, this conversation of duality and this complementary nature of 
of um, the different types of fresh water, salt water, mm. and um, masculine and the feminine. I think that all kind of plays into this interweaving contextually. Right. Um, and so then in terms of uh, our definitions, uh, just so that uh, the audience will sort of be well acquainted with the, the topic matter at hand, probably would be good for us to talk about the specific things that we're studying mm-hmm. uh, or the specific um, sort of creatures that we're, we're looking into. So do you want to tell them about the mo'o? Yeah, so, you know, we, we chose to focus our conversation on, uh, like, specific types of spiritual entities or, or deities uh, for the topic of healing. Um, and so in my focus, I, I looked at Ho'omana, um, Hawaiian religion, um, and specifically the mo'o, right? And so, um, you know, mo'o in uh, Hawaiian culture are understood to be these uh, water deities, right? Primarily female, but Hawaiian akua or gods that in- embody these life-giving uh, and death-dealing properties of the water, right? And the water being the element that they're associated with. So typically mo'o are not ocean dwellers, but associated with uh, fresh water and, and they're shape shifters by nature, right? So whether they come in the form of um, large serpent-like creatures or in the form of um, you know, the shape-shifting dual-natured creature or a beautiful woman, right? Those are the, those are the dual natures of the, of the mo'o. So um, many are known to be female and, and stunningly beautiful, right? And, and naga, from my understanding, are very similar. You want to tell us a little about that? Yeah, so the naga are uh, one of the phenomena that I'm looking into in my uh, studies of Buddhism, uh, specifically the Buddhism of Kathmandu Valley, but the Naga are a phenomenon that uh, are identified and understood throughout the Buddhist world. So they are these like reptilian shapeshifter uh, entities that sort of, um, that are considered to be bearers of wisdom, but also have the potential to bring great trouble. They kind of have a trickster element. They can definitely, um, you know, if you go down the wrong path and you run into the wrong naga, you might wind up as dinner for a giant snake. So, um, but they do have kind of very, very similar to the mo'o. They have this quality of being um, this this fluid shapeshifter uh, amphibiousness about them, where sometimes they're snakes, sometimes they are humans, or at least they would appear as humans, but that is a, a shape-shifted form. Or sometimes they could be like humans with a, a snake lower body. You'll frequently see them depicted that way in the art. And also much like the no- mo'o, they're identified with um, like sources of fresh water as well. Uh, in the Naga's case, they're largely identified with the rainfall and the coming of the rains. Um, and they have some amount of salt water association as well because they are said to come from these secret cities uh, like hidden under doors on the ocean floor. So their homelands are these kind of saltwater realms. Uh, but then they're understood to come come to the land and reside in springs or uh, pools of different different types. And they're especially responsible for the, the coming of the rain. And um, this is, yeah, you'll find ceremonies dedicated to, to the Naga and the coming of the rain all the way from like Sri Lanka and Southeast Asia through India into Nepal, Tibet, often to China and to the east to 
Korea and Japan, just basically everywhere where Buddhism and sort of Buddhist worldviews have spread, this idea of the Naga has gone with them. Or in some cases, there were pre-existent ideas of reptilian or amphibious water deities that became associated with the Naga, with Buddhism spread to those places. Um, and that's why sometimes you'll see them identified as uh, dragons in the Eastern Asian mythology, uh, where they become associated with these with these older myths of the you know water bringing dragons and the dragon kings. Um, but so really, yeah, there's very interesting parallels that we can find between Mo'o and Naga, um, which is not uh, we can't really draw a historical correlation to find these parallels because the Naga are centered in. Uh, South and East Asia, whereas the Mo'o are an idea centered here in Hawaii, which is, uh, you know, like genealogically unrelated for at least thousands and thousands and thousands of years back. It's not like it was one religion that started in one place and branched off in these different directions, but rather they're, they're very, very different worldviews from very, very different historical situations. Uh, and yet they both come to these, the same conclusion or they find these same deities in terms of similar deities in terms of these amphibious shape-shifting water creatures which are also related to health in both cases as well yeah i mean i think healing has long been associated with water and across the landscape of many various religious traditions you know ho'omana is ho'omana is no different um that's for sure you know um i think the also the association right with these female mo'o deities um, or these deities with fresh water and and healing um, brings in the idea of of water management right water management is by definition conflict management and so the idea of um, yeah these deities being associated with healing and the healing qualities of, of water you know that's something that exists across time and place in in various traditions right and then this uh this healing element can become terrestrial as well when it becomes about healing the land so when we look at this historically um the naga are in addition to being associated with rains they're associated with droughts and when a drought is going on it's because something is wrong with the naga and that uh that in disharmony, whatever it is, has to be brought into balance so that the Naga can do their thing and bring the rain back. And so just like the, the land can become kind of dried up and barren and need to call on these uh, spiritual deities to, to bring in the rain and, and restore things to like the fertile, uh, kind of productive and life-sustaining world that we want to live in, uh, maybe there's also a parallel between that and our own bodies and what, you know, we need what we've needed historically or what we need now in terms of, um, well, yeah, introducing these these fluid, uh, water, amphibious, and maybe gender-bending elements into our, our understanding of ourselves. Yeah, I mean, you bring up a good point, right? We would, uh, in ancient times, right, uh, nature is not just distinct phenomenon, but it, it cycles, and the understanding of praying to certain gods or goddesses or deities for um, influence or favor in very real life situations, right? And and before it was for agriculture, it was for rain, it was for 
um, survival, right? And and our means, our needs for survival were were you know different hundreds of years ago than than they are now. But I think that you bring up a really good point in that you know perhaps there is a continued relationship in how we can still have that same relation, right? But but what are the things that we are calling on for for strength, right? Um, I think when you think about um, male and female power in Hawaiian religion, it's helpful to understand that aku are nature, deities, right? We've mm. alluded to that a bit. We've talked about male and uh, male akua that are associated with water. We've talked about mo'o and, you know, really the influence and the way that things work in tandem with the natural world, right? And so I think if you don't understand, like, these natural cycles of the world, then... Um, you can never understand power and you can, you know, and, and then how that relates to real life, lived everyday experience. Right. And that's something that we're, uh, you and I are really trying to focus on with our research and our work that is maybe uh, uh, different from the way that a lot of religious studies has gone on for the past 150 years. But it's sort of the it's wrapped up with the agenda of our department and with new ways of thinking about this, where we really are not just considered uh, interested in like ancient philosophies and beliefs and lifestyles that are no longer practiced, um, but we're really interested in what does this mean for us now and how can we apply these uh, these principles, these understandings? How can we bring this into our own world, or how is it already coming into our own world in ways that can yeah, kind of uh, affect the world for the better? Um, you know, there has been a, a severe uh, disenfranchisement of spirit that has gone on kind of in the Western consciousness for, the la- for a long time now, since uh, like the theories of Darwin came in and kind of kicked out this uh, old fundamentalist way of looking at the world, you know, through a, a, a literalist biblical interpretation that left a lot of people shaken and other events like um, the world wars led to a lot of nihilism and, and cynicism and a, a rejection of these kind of spiritual ways of seeing the world in favor of just a cold scientific perspective such that now when people look out at the stars for a lot of people they look at a sky full of dead particles the stars aren't even alive anymore and um, to take the magic out of the world that way uh, is kind of it's reductionist and it, it limits our ability to engage with a lot of these healing practices and energies that are actually have been valuable to humanity for thousands of years. Um, and so while we're not exactly trying to uh, like advocate for any particular spiritual path or, or any particular religion, we are trying to revitalize the, um, the power that comes with some of these spiritual practices and recognize its legitimacy as a mode of healing some of the problems that we have yeah that we're I mean, living these, with today. these spirits highlight issues right of or these you know deities they uh virtues and and values and and highlight issues of gender of voice of sexuality of um knowledge ecology right spirituality and and especially but not only in indigenous contexts but um i think that water spirits like the element of water itself right it's powerful it's unpredictable and um realizing that terrible or that terrif- terrible terrifying and wonderful 
Terraful. Yeah, that's Terraful. What I did there. You saw that's that. That's right. Um, at the same time, right? It's that again, that dual nature. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. Like think of a crashing wave, and the power behind that. It is absolutely terrifying and wonderful. Terraful yeah. all at once. I mean, healing with water. I think it's one of the most powerful transformational methods, right? It it will put you into that flow of spirit and energy of the earth. It's it's inevitable. So now that we've discussed some of this stuff uh, more broadly, I wonder if we can turn our attention specifically towards uh, healing and the body and the relationship uh, between the body and the fluidity of gender and sexuality and um, these uh, water deities and water practices that we're discussing. Yeah, I mean, I think all of this is really in an effort to examine the healing aspects of particular um, goddesses and other deities and their connection with the healing roles of um, people and how um, reverence for the female principle, right, Mother Earth and her manifestations as the goddess can help create a peaceful, prosperous civilization for all. So. Yeah, let's let's talk about that a bit, you know. So the the deity that's at the center of my research right now is this deity known by various names, uh, most commonly called Karunamaya, although this specific instance is most commonly called Bungadia or Machindranat. Those are some of the names that, that this deity is referred to. But it's a manifestation of Avalokiteshvara, the um, Buddhist bodhisattva, within the context of Kathmandu Valley. Um, and this particular instantiation of Avalokiteshvara is very interesting because Avalokiteshvara already has a shapeshifter element um, in that he's known to be able to assume any form according to the needs of the people, but he doesn't really have maybe a, a, a trans identity or something like that. There's no notion of him being particularly male and female. Uh, rather, he's just kind of considered male in India uh, or female in certain instantiations uh, in the East, but but not really seen as, as like a, a transforming, uh, sexually transforming deity, or, or that, that male-femaleness at least isn't the emphasis of the understanding. However, with this specific instantiation of the deity in Kathmandu as Bungadia, um, Bungadia is actually understood as a both male and female deity. There is elements of both when these uh, rituals uh, sort of the annual rituals surrounding Bungadia when they're performed, the Bungadia undergoes both male and female rites of passage, um, which is quite unique and interesting from the perspective uh, of a Buddhist South Asian kind of perspective, which is for a very, very long time historically very patriarchal and very um, kind of uh, male, a male dominated perspective and a male dominated society. And so having this specific instantiation of this kind of gender fluidity in this one small instance is, is very interesting, particularly because Bungadia is the god who set the Naga free and brought the rain after a long drought. And so Bungadia's festivals each year are in honor of the Naga and the coming of the rain for agricultural purposes. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's patriarchal value hierarchy dynamics, right, that supports this dualistic thinking that 
really forces a schism of otherness, right? Like we see it nature versus nurture, mm-hmm. mind versus body, right. uh, male versus female, rather than acknowledging this sort of duality and interwoven nature of it all. Mm-hmm. And I think the shapeshifterness of the of these different deities, the the Naga and the Mo'o, they both point towards this kind of non-essentialness of gender, or the fact that um, these principles of femininity and masculinity are not inherently tied to our biological bodies, and that as you know, men or women, we actually need to tap into both sides of these these principles or these energies to live a balanced and meaningful life, and to heal ourselves, uh, maybe. Many of our problems, be they psychological, physiological, environmental, um, they might come down to uh, amounts of imbalance within our internal understandings of uh, ourselves and how we should be living in any given situation. Yeah, I think um, a lot of Native societies, right, will, well, they are matriarchal and egalitarian. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, women, men, and all genders, right, and community identity roles were practicing and existing within an ecological balance. And it wasn't until European invasion that matriarchy was replaced with patriarchy. Um, but I think the common misconception, um, perhaps, is, is or about matriarchy is, is that it means transferring the same sort of destructive power of white cisgender men to women when in actuality, matriarchy pushes us to envision a world outside of settler colonialism and white supremacy, right? Um, right? Like with indigenous matriarchy, power is not the focus, the focus is ecological harmony. Right. And so I think that, that is, that's what we talk about, right? When we talk about this matriarch- matriarchy versus patriarchy, masculine and feminine, it is, not one or the other, it is the coexistence and interdependence and necessity of both. Right, yeah, the scholarship on this has been, um, like, there's been some really valuable scholarship done to, to kind of look into these uh, great goddess-worshipping pasts of, of humanity, um, but it's still kind of uh, undergoing development because we, are, we have still been sort of rooted in this framework of, um, like, mother or father, which one is going to be on top, it has to be one or the other. And so there's a notion that once the mother was on top until she was overthrown by the father and now the father is on top. Um, that was put forward by these like really great scholars like uh, Gimbutas, who did a lot of work uh, kind of examining, speculatively examining the, the origins of goddess worship in humanity. Um, and so that's really valuable scholarship. But as we continue to deconstruct these ideas further and really dig into indigenous ways of understanding the world, um, we're, we're seeing more and more that it's really not about an overthrow of power as much as it's about establishing uh, balance and harmony between these powers. And so yeah, when we look at these matriarchal cultures, it isn't about um, feminine supremacy over the masculine. Uh, that's just a reversal of the, the patriarchal systems that we exist in right now. But rather, it's about yeah, bringing these things into balance and having a, a kind of working relationship between the feminine and the masculine, both within ourselves and then within our society and, and how we practice our societal norms and values. Yeah, right, the cyclic nature of life and the awareness of the relationship and interdependence of all things, uh, the importance of innate knowledge and our own instinct and how to allow that to guide us and make decisions for the greater good of the collective. 
Um, I think that requires an understanding that all beings have like a right to be treated as worthy in and of themselves. And, um, you know, it's really this androcentric power dynamic that sets man at the top mm-hmm. um, and then restricted, contained, maimed animals or, yeah. right, um, they don't have the ability to make a choice, right? And it's the same root uh, same nature of belief as to just how our entire world works and society just moves on with the rationalization that that's just the nature of the hierarchy um, animals and women both available for the passive consumption of man right yeah. um, but I think that as we unpack these the, this research that that we're working on you we see how the direction of things is all wrong right it's not this hierarchy top to bottom of power it's around and around and what we put in and it's what circles back that's fed to us right whether it's food or energy I think that's how we need to think in order to determine what's ethical you know people treated as equals um, and how we sort of reevaluate the structure of our society what does social justice look like right mm-hmm. distributive justice corrective justice um, and how does this impact everyone involved? Right. And so then uh, a pretty specific um, kind of uh, instance of, of how out of balance all of this is in our modern world is all of the conversation surrounding the identity politics of the trans identity and LGBTQ plus uh, folks, but especially the, the trans thing, because that is so like prominent in our culture right now, is this huge war between all of these forces saying what people can do with their body, what they can't do with their body, what's right and what's wrong. Um, trying to understand, you know, is uh, a person who feels, uh, who identifies as a female who's been born into a, a male body, is that a mental illness? Is that uh, some kind of physiological illness? You know, how do we treat this thing? Does it need to be treated? Right? And this is, uh, you know, these kinds of questions have fascinated humanity for a long time, but in many indigenous systems of living, there is actually spaces already carved out uh, for, this, for this identity. So if we look to South Asia, we don't find this as much in Nepal, but if you go down into India, you'll find the Hijra people who are, um, you know, what we might now call like trans, typically uh, male-born people who, I, who wear female clothes and sort of live a, live a female lifestyle. Although they're not exactly recognized as female either, they're instead recognized as hijra, which is this, this um, a different kind of category that exists apart from the simple binary of male and female. And I think we can find something similar in, in Hawaii with the, with the mahu, which I don't mm-hmm. know too much about. Yeah, you know, very. there are similarities there. You see that in uh, Samoan culture, Hawaiian culture, um, but this acknowledgement, Native American culture, right, with two-spirit, oh, yeah. but... Yep this acknowledgement that it is not either or, it, it not for all, you know, and, mm-hmm. and not for any, even if, you know, that we all have both, and um, this acceptance and acknowledgement of, um, you know, and, well, and interesting, you know, often they, those people were associated with a very special, specific healing abilities or qualities, right? Or abilities right. to connect more easily with um, other spiritual realms. So I think that there's something else to that, right? This sort of inherent acknowledgement of this dual nature is exactly what connects someone 
more easily to the divine. Right, right. Um, and so then looking into the sort of the specific dynamics of Kathmandu Valley, it's very interesting to find this this god that is not, uh, I wouldn't say is, is like a transsexual god because that is a very much like a modern Western term and the people in Kathmandu Valley don't really identify this god as being transsexual, but, but does have this, this element of being male and female at the same time. Um, and the fact that that's associated with, with these water deities and the bringing of rain is very interesting. But this god is also highly associated with healing. And uh, the god, Bungadia, is actually... Bungadia is considered to be a, uh, I guess, a non-able-bodied entity. Bungadia is a leper. And this is very interesting to me to think that a leper can be a god or a god can have leprosy, but this is one of the qualities of Bungadia is that he's associated with leprosy and but also with the healing of leprosy. So even though he himself possesses leprosy and is not exactly healed from it, uh, he's known to be able to, to heal this, which is so interesting to me because of his association with the Naga. And then I believe that the Mo'o have uh, associations with healing, specifically with like skin diseases, leprosy, smallpox, um, these kinds of things as well. And so again, we find this, uh, this synchronicity between cultures that are not, uh, it's not a historically rooted synchronicity as far as we can tell, but rather something that is arising uh, independently, but parallel within, you know, very different and distant world cultures. It's kind of just a human synchronicity though, as I sit here and think about it, you know, mm -hmm. I think about the, the best People who, you know, the, the best healers, they're ones who have gone through it themselves and come out on the other side, right? It's yeah, that right. sort of lived experience. And yep. and I'm sure there's room for discussion there. Like, do you need to have every experience in order? I mean, I don't know. But like, I mean, yeah, it's that embodied experience, right? That makes it what it is. And, and so... Do you have to be fully healed to be a healer? I don't think so. Yeah. You know, I think you can be in the midst of your own grief, your own deep healing. And because of simply being there in the trenches, you're going to give the best healing, comfort, solace to whoever comes across your way because they need it and you have it because you've lived it. Absolutely. I know from my own experiences, uh, sometimes when I've been going through some of the darkest and hardest moments of, of my life, uh, the, the one upside of it is realizing, oh, hey, I can talk to people about this now. This was something that I wasn't really qualified to, to help anybody with, but now that I've had to get through it myself, I've, I've figured some things out, and I'm uh, of more value to other people who have been through this or are going through it because I've gone through it myself. So it's kind of like the the light side of the darkness or something like that is the fact that it going through the darkness can potentially prepare us to help others going through the same thing or the same kind of thing. Yeah, the idea that you can be empowered um, or overcome obstacles by learning how to integrate your spiritual passion with your life and that these day-to-day -day lived actions interwoven into everything we do um, is how we bring this psychological knowledge down to earth into our real lives and and embody that learned healing right the, it's the process of questing and practice that is healing 
not just this like single idea. That's right. And, and this might also have to do with why um, indigenous ways of living and ways of seeing the world are of such particular value to us in trying to, to sort of solve some of the global and personal crises that we're going through at this point is because all indigenous culture everywhere in the world is, is wounded. It's been oppressed and subjugated and you know there are modes of resilience uh, and preservation and revitalization that are going on but these are the cultures that are sort of the equivalent of the, the old wounded he- healer on an individual level. It's going on on a cultural level. And so these cultures are, are, have dealt with the apocalypse. They've dealt with the destruction of their world. And now that we're dealing with uh, apocalypse and the destruction of the world on new levels, these are actually the cultures that are already have gone through it and have some mechanisms for um, managing, uh, you know, apocalyptic... Uh, an apocalyptic kind of world system. Yeah, what, you know, once in ruins, what must occur to heal, right? Yeah. I think it's this rediscovery um, of a restorative root system of our life, right? Just as with Earth, just as in this life-death life cycle that that goddess wisdom teaches, right? Um, like Pele and Hi'iaka, right? I, I learned from Dr. Marie Alohalani Brown and in, in her research and my work in Ho'omana, but that um, Pele controls the lava, right? Her mother is Haumea, the earth goddess, and uh, Pele's function is a deity to create new land through lava. So lava is this life-giving and, and death-dealing, right? But um, so Pele, this goddess of lava, right, she's paired up with her sister Hiyaka. Mm-hmm. And, you know, understanding Hiyaka's name, it gives us um, insight into her function, right? So much of understanding, I think, we started this conversation by talking about these sort of value systems and essential natures of deities mm-hmm. and goddesses that we can call into our lives, right? What are the the nature and virtues of these Beings, what do they teach us about our own selves and our own mm-hmm. life, right? And so, you know, Hiyaka's function is is new life, the revegetation of land, and how it brings new life and heals the land, right? Yeah. Um, and so, before lava, right? There's just ocean, just water, mm-hmm. right? And um, and then once the lava stops, we will erode and just be ocean again, right? Um, but it's this, I think if we look at that as this own sort of cycle of our own life, cycle of grief, right? Um, the cycle of loss, grief, and mourning, and then the cycle of new life, right? These destruction, standing in the ashes of what is left of your life, and then these small green offshoots that begin to grow. Yeah. But what happens before all of that, right? There's so much, there's so much tough stuff that happens before that seedling shoots through the ground and you see that little sprout right there's so much growth so much Mm -hmm. destruction right and so I think that sort of understanding that and calling that in right that's what goddess wisdom teaches us that's how Mm -hmm. we apply it to our own lives that's how we look at the hardships faced within whatever contextual framework of our life and we turn it around to perhaps 
make it some sort of transformative healing experience. Yeah. So I love that you bring in Pele and the creation and destruction of the world because that's so, uh, yeah, resonant to this these issues of harmony and, and balance that we're talking about. And uh, I think when we look at these these entities like Bungadia bringing the rain or the, the Mo'o and the Naga, um, and we can kind of see the, that, yeah, there are these these traditional uh, rituals could be to yeah bring the rain for the agricultural season, for example. Um, but now people don't do that anymore. Um, and we've kind of, in the West and the Western-influenced world, we've created systems to, uh, to sort of circumvent the need to rely on the gods or on nature. We don't have to yeah, call like upon... sprinklers. Like sprinklers, <laughs> exactly. We don't need the, to call on the rain gods when we can just have sprinklers water our systems. But actually, in many places, you know, these sprinklers are drying water from deep wells that are running dry to keep lawns alive that never existed before, and it can't exist forever because all the water is going to run out in this place. Um, the the systems that we've put in place to artificially create paradise are actually destroying the world in many cases. And so, just as we've kind of historically would call on these energies uh, and these powers, these deities, to address drought and bring about rain. Um, these days, we might need to call on some of these same energies and powers in order to address our, our modern catastrophes of climate change, environmental disaster, and um, you know maybe we need these same energies even if they are for different purposes. Purposes that would seem to no longer exist, but actually they do. We've just sort of masked them with our sometimes self-destructive technologies. Yeah, so how we can really sort of look back to these innate instinctive understandings of the way the world works and and bring that religious or not into life the way we live and see and interact in our daily lives the way we um, tackle the difficult lived experiences right and and bring that not only into issues like climate change and and the interwoven nature of everything nature, sacred beings, non-human and humans alike, um, but then also to our own sort of internal strife, right? And how do we perhaps take these abstract values or concepts and um, embody them a little bit easier, you know, finding some point of internal connection within ourselves that then we can go out into the world with and radiate to others. Yeah, that's a great way of bringing it all together. I think that's uh, kind of wraps up what we've what we've talked about. Unless there's anything else that you want to uh, bring into the conversation, I think I could go down rabbit holes forever <laughs> sure, with this sure. conversation. So we probably should end here. We'll end, we'll we'll end it here for now. Um, so thanks so much for for listening to us, uh, giving us the time to express some of these ideas, and. Uh, please uh, like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. We really don't want to be grad students. We would rather be influencers. That seems much easier and more fun. So um, if there's like, any... Like, comment, subscribe. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.